Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest today is Kat Galinas. You can connect with Kat at her website, subconsciousalchemist.com. Love that name. Her LinkedIn page, which is just her name, Kat Galinas, and her Instagram is at subconsciousalchemist. Every episode, I donate to and raise awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice, and Kat has selected the wonderful organization Antelope Recovery which I actually believe you cannot donate, but is an incredible organization to bring your awareness to. The founder, Shelby Robbins, is a past guest of mine, and she's doing really incredible work with teen mental health and making this transformational work available to larger populations. So definitely check out Antelope Recovery. It's linked in the show notes, and all of the places you can connect with Kat are linked in the show notes as well. This conversation was such a cool one because Kat knows so much about the human experience. We did a little bit of a deep dive on ancestral trauma. And one of my favorite parts of this conversation is actually when we speak about the mice cherry blossom experiment. So I won't spoil what that is, but it's really fascinating the way that if our parents or their parents went through something that was not healed, not processed, the way that we inherit that. And I found it really illuminating the way that Kat described it. We also talk about trauma in the way that it can happen to us and how different people respond differently to different events. And so something that might be traumatic for me doesn't have the same effect on another person. And so how do we work through that? How do we make sense of it? How do we process what happens in our life so that it no longer absorbs us or keeps us frozen in a moment in time that we didn't want to feel. Kat just has so much to say about psychology, energetics, and ultimately with the understanding she has is able to help folks live into their potential. I think all of us, whether conscious or unconsciously, we all want to live into our highest potential, into the highest version of ourselves. And Kat really has a multidimensional understanding of how to help people live into that. And you're, you're going to get a flavor of that in this conversation. With all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy this conversation with Kat Galinas. All right, Kat, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Hi, thank you. So, I mean, before we jumped on here, I, I was tapping into all the different places we might go in this conversation. But one of the very consistent things that I do on this program is start by asking, I think you'll dig this question. I start by asking, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Sometimes empty. A lot of times there was just money left on the bookshelf to eat pizza. Hmm. People eating separately in separate rooms, sometimes together like that. Not a lot of family banter. More mm-hmm. like just my parents talking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how would you describe yourself as a child? Uh, what age? That's a good question. 
let's start with a lot of times in my inner work when I'm when I'm making contact with a younger version of myself that the seven-year-old comes up so let's go with the seven-year-old yeah at seven I just remember really wanting to join the Peace Corps I remember just having a really strong interest in all things spiritual and even back then so I remember yeah, I remember that being a big thing. It was like a ballet dancer or a Peace Corps or something like that. And I just remember thinking about spirit a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your career did not begin in coaching or human development or anything that you're up to now. Is that right? Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I went to college for Italian because I couldn't, I couldn't decide what I wanted to do. And then when I graduated, I think I tutored SATs for 10 years. And then, you know, at that whole time I was doing that, I also did Landmark, if you've heard of that. Yes. Landmark Education, Vipassana, a whole bunch of different transformative programs. And it wasn't until much later that that came. Mm-hmm. So when, like, I've heard you describe yourself as a personal development junkie, and I would probably describe myself the same way. Like, it, to a certain extent, at this point, I have to hit the brakes on all the different things that I might invest my time and energy in because there's such an embarrassment of riches of incredible places I could place my attention. And when did that start to become a way of being for you that it wasn't just doing landmark or having a a spiritual orientation when you were younger? It was, it was like, I am committing my life to developing and growing. Mm. Ah, that was at 24. My, college boyfriend at the time, his mom came home one day and she could just feel her aliveness. She was radiating energy and her eyes were bright. And I would say the day before that was not the case. It was just kind of dim and just, you know, how a lot of people can be just kind of just doing their thing. She came in and she was palpably like glowing with aliveness. And then she started telling us about how she did the landmark forum weekend. So when she told us that, I just I just got this intuitive hunch just from feeling her energy. I said, whatever that is, I want that. Mm-hmm. And we just went to an intro and I just signed up right away. And, you know, it wasn't right away, though. I did the first intro and I'm sorry, the first weekend and it was transformative. It just has you look at life and yourself in a completely different way, which now I think is more common. But back then in 2002, it blew my mind just understanding what it was like to project onto other people or realize that you think you're the only one who, or I thought I was the only one who suffered, but it turns out the humans have a very common thread of, you know, what it's like to be a human. So I felt extremely like moved and peaceful after the first one, but it wasn't until the following year, the second course at the time was $800. So that was a lot of money in my world back then. It was like, I was like, what, 24 years old? Mm-hmm. And I had a dream. And in the dream, maybe eight months later, it told me, like, go back, go back to Landmark and take that second course. And um, I have dreams like that every once in a while, but it was very strong. It was clearly not a dream. It was like a push. And I've had that happen in other moments of my life. Mm-hmm. So I just woke up and I said, okay. So I went and then that that weekend was so profound, like, I mean, it really does like blow you out of the box of whatever you're living yeah. in. And uh, that's when I committed. The whole trajectory was different after that. Yeah. So my, I've never done Landmark, but I've done adjacent or similar experiences. And and there's a lot of things I could say about it, but I, I guess 
one thing that blew my mind is just that, well, you mentioned the word projection. And that was something, I don't know if I learned that specifically in, it was called gratitude training is what I attended. And this whole notion that I am creating, like I see the world a certain way and every other person is doing the same thing, but that I also can incorporate new beliefs and adopt new behaviors, new ways of being in the world that, that blew my mind. And right. It really no did. one tells you that. Yeah. So is that, was it something like that, that clicked with you around landmark? Like it was, was it something about, Oh, these beliefs I have don't have to be true and I can learn new ways of being new behaviors, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, one of the first things I realized there is, okay. So there was the landmark forum leader and the, the way that the courses are taught is there's a lot of he'll lecture a piece, but then people will go up and ask questions and things like that. And this guy goes up to the stage and he's being really, he's being really bitter and just arguing with the leader. And I remember sitting there thinking like, God, he's so annoying. Why doesn't he just sit down? Why did he even come if he's not going to listen to the thing? He's just like my dad. And then the Lammer Forum leader pauses him, pauses him and like turns to us and says, do you hear your judgments about him or whatever, whatever's going on and about what you're saying about either him or me? And like people are nodding. And, and then he said, and then he like said it, I don't remember exactly how he said it. I'm going to paraphrase, but something about like, whatever you're saying about him or me, you have said about someone else. Who are you actually thinking of when you look at either one of us? Hmm. And I was like, oh, I was thinking about my dad. I was like completely thinking he's like my dad. And he was saying like, you not only do this with us, but you do it with everybody around you. So that was like the like the pop moment of show, like demonstrating to us what projection is and how we're just, then he goes into talking about the already always listening. So that was like a pivotal moment, but the whole weekend was like little pops like that of like, pointing out what we were doing that we had never thought to question before because we just thought that was the truth and we were just believing everything we were thinking. So, mm. yeah. What is the, what always already listening? Is that what it, you said? Yeah. They talk, they teach us about how we are already always listening to everybody around us in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And like, if we say that if we have a belief, like, people are always out for themselves or something or whatever it is. We will always be listening in that way. And we're filtering everything that people are saying. So there's no other way for them to show up. Even if they're being super generous, like we're filtering it through that. So we can only see it through our interpretations. So. Yeah. All right. So I think I'm going to ping pong around in this conversation, Kat, because there's so many different things that I think could be really useful for understanding. Like one, one of my past guests, his name is Sam Lamott. He has a podcast called How to Human. And I feel like we could title this conversation How to Human. And I, I want to bounce around in all the different ways that you have learned how to human and how you support other people in How to Human. And I'm, I'm borrowing that from Sam Lamott. So it's, it's not my thing. But putting that aside, one thing that I don't think gets enough airtime is that not only when we're conscious, do we internalize some of these beliefs, but things that our parents had and that our great grandparents or and grandparents and great grandparents, like it's, we're kind of born with a certain set of beliefs. And on your website, you have an experiment. You say, Google the mice cherry blossom experiment. 
And I, I would love to hear you explain what that is. And it, it relates to a lot of the different things that we might speak about today. So what is the mice cherry blossom experiment? Okay. So it's experimentation on animals, which I do not, you know, I'm not like a fan of that, but the sci- I'll talk about the science. They had these little white mice or, and they would shock them, which is really sad, but they would shock them while blasting the smell of cherry blossoms on them. So eventually they got to a place where whenever they smelled cherry blossoms, they would freak out and get really stressed because they associated it with a shock. So then they had them, you know, mating and their pups also would react to the cherry blossom smell in that kind of stressed, anxious way, even though they had never done the experiment on them. And same with their grand pups. So like epigenetics is becoming a lot more popular, but that whole concept of inherited ancestral trauma, I mean, it's intended to be for our survival so that we can avoid things like cherry blossoms if they really are dangerous or snakes if if we need to in our environment, but it can happen in a lot of ways that don't make sense as well. Like if we're like our parents are born in during wartime and mm. we no longer have that at all. And then we're still reacting in that same way. So every one of us has our DNA shift and change, and then we inherit that. So, but what's wild is if you know, uh, family constellations and Bert Hellinger, and he developed this whole way of working with inherited ancestral trauma with a few other people that's become very popular. Mark Wolin wrote a book called It Didn't Start With You. So they ha- there's so much science and tested mm. stuff to back this up. So I'm just going to go right to talking about what they saw. Yeah, but um, people will inherit unconscious, not only beliefs, but experiences and sometimes repeat them. They will unconsciously repeat things. Like one of the most common things is repeating patterns in relationships, even if they've never met their parents, even if they're adopted. So this has nothing to do. I mean, if it's definitely more cemented in if they've experienced it in childhood, certain patterns, like maybe anxious attachment or just that's just one example. But even if they've done experiments with twins where they've never met their parents and they've done experiments with adopted children and they will still repeat a lot of the patterns and different children will inherit different aspects of the parents or grandparents trauma. So it's it's kind of wild how we as a species we really do inherit and absorb our surroundings. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of or seen the documentary Three Identical Strangers before? No, but that sounds interesting. I think it's, I know where you're going. Yeah, that, it's super interesting. And and you can imagine based on your response what I might say. But And this is, again, talk about messed up. Like I, I don't advocate for testing on animals. I, I certainly don't advocate for testing on humans. And so there is a, a scandal component of this. So I'm definitely not advocating for it. But it was really interesting. And I, I think I want to watch it again now, especially because this conversation is evoking it. But three triplets were separated at birth, raised in completely different environments. If you look at them as quote unquote experiments, they they had not very similar upbringings. And they still, if I remember the documentary correctly, so A, there was a natural yearning to, to find, they, like they learned at some point that they were triplets, they wanted to find each other. And when they connected with each other, their mannerisms were very similar, their fears, their beliefs, like a lot wow. of, it's really crazy. And so epigenetics and and what you're born with before you're ever treated any sort of way, it really can have a, a profound impact on on the person you are. And it sounds like kind of intuitive when you talk about it, but it also... It seems like it gets a little, it escapes our consciousness for some reason. Like 
we focus so much on what happens when we're here because it is vitally important. But I'll say a, a personal example for me, very recently, actually, this past weekend, my family and I went to a restaurant for my dad's 70th birthday. And it was a, a very expensive restaurant. My dad was telling a story about how in one of his early jobs, he had an expense account and he took my uncle out for, so his brother took his brother out for a nice meal on the expense account. And my uncle literally turned green because of how uncomfortable being in a expensive restaurant made him feel. And I've grown up very privileged. I've always known where my next thousand meals are going to come from. But when I go to a restaurant like that, I can feel within me, scarcity is one word that I could use, but like, I don't belong here. It's on a deep mm -hmm. cellular level. It's, this is, this is a lot. This is like, do I really deserve this luxury? And I, I think it's hard to decouple because I, on one hand, I think that equity and like thriving, collective thriving for all is important to me. And so I feel a little bit of guilt just being at this restaurant when I, my mind can start to play the game of think of all the other more useful ways that we could be using this money. But maybe on a, a deeper level, it's, I think generationally, I, I've never, our, our family never believed that we deserve to have that level of financial abundance in our life. So I say all this to say it's like, it feels like really practical actually when, when we start to examine our life in any meaningful way. Absolutely. I mean, I would be curious to see usually with, if I was working with a client, that's one of the first things we do is if they have some sort of experience that keeps coming up that they don't have any logical connection to, we look at their parents, their grandparents, and usually we can find something. And if they have no history of it, it's fine. It's just whatever's held in the body is held in the body. So we we go to see what's in the unconscious and like nothing inherently has meaning like that. It's mm. we can have really neutral thoughts. So we can pull apart any sort of energy and a thought so that it doesn't have to be there. And then we can then we can choose. We can rebuild it from scratch. But yeah, I would probably go and look first. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be interesting. I mean, we mm. are people who have come from cultures where we had, I mean, different generations, right? Where we, we had to struggle for food and we're tribal. And so there's a lot of things just there in the culture that could pop up. Mm. What are some other ways that you look at helping folks navigate? There's, there's different ways we could phrase it, but the unconscious or like what's happening in our body. I know that I've been super guilty of trying to figure life out up here in my head. And uh, the mind definitely works more quickly than our emotional landscape, our body, but the body has so much intelligence. And I'm, I'm just wondering how you help people skill builds. I, I think that's where a lot of transformation happens is, is actually below, like below the neck. So yeah. How do, how do you look at supporting folks in their development in that way? Have you ever heard of focusing techniques? Yes. So that's one of them is, well, first is just slowing down enough to listen, mm. but, and knowing that things that are held in the body, they're not going to be logical all the time and really letting go of that. But the more you listen to your body and you feel the sensations, once you get a little more, some people can do it right away. Some people, it's a lot harder, but once you practice, everyone can get to a point where your body sensations will tell you things. 
you slow down and you just listen and ask, what are you holding? What's what's going on? It will not only give you information and tell you things, but sometimes you'll see images, you'll see feelings, and you just let them come out and let them be known. There's a lot of power in just naming the truth. Mm-hmm. Whatever, like you ever hear of, sorry, I'm, I'm referencing a million things, but you ever hear of power versus force? Have you ever read that? I think you mentioned it to me, the the intro call that we had before this podcast, but I, I haven't read it. Okay, that, that's fine. But David R. Hawkins, he was a psychiatrist or psychologist, I'm not sure which one, but he had this whole practice and he discovered that the body holds truth, not only about their own lives, their own ancestry, but also about things around the world. It's pretty trippy. So you can muscle test to see if something is true or false. The, when something is true, the body will be strengthened and with the muscle testing, the arm, the muscle will get stronger. If it's false, it will get weaker. Even if you hold an apple that has pesticides on it, it will weaken the arm. So there's something about falseness or something that isn't healthy that will, your body just knows it. And he's done it so many times with different tests and they're all blind tests. So he'll have like a number of different people testing for a series of the same thing and getting the same answers. And as long as the person is at a certain level of consciousness, like power versus force, if they're not in the force levels, they're more in the power levels, they test really clearly and really cleanly and they'll get the same answers for all sorts of things around the world. So you can, as soon as you name something, so the technique I work with is from where I trained part of the main part of my technique, which is mind light, but they teach EFT tapping and they use various other techniques to help find what is being held in the body and being held like it's true. So mm-hmm. once you, you tap on the meridians and you name it, just the body hearing the truth and then hitting on these meridians where your energy is flowing helps to release it when you meet it with compassion mm. and welcome, welcoming and acceptance. So the energy of your body completely changes as you, you start releasing these things. Is there, a, is there a personal example that comes to mind for you of something that your logical mind probably couldn't comprehend, but it was being held in the body and, and what what it was like for you to let go of that, release it, make contact with it? Me personally? But I've had a, since I was born, since I was two, my mom told me I was extremely physically very careful. Like I don't like getting cut or hurt. So I'm like super, super careful. So I have a lot of unconscious, well, had a lot of unconscious fear of just physical harm. Mm. And I've had to just find it, why it's being held in my body and release it. But if you actually look back at my ancestry, it makes sense because my parents grew up during Japanese occupation. There was a lot of poverty. There's a lot of, you know, the way Asian people raise children, it's systemically can be violent. (laughs) So I have a lot of that in in there. So even though I'm here and my mom's trying to do things differently, there was all that in there, this, this fear of being physically hurt and attacked with no experience of it. So I had to find that. And I would see even images, feelings, beliefs, memories of how things are with people and then tap and release it. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what is it like when you say meeting that with compassion, I think that there's, there's a certain in personal development, there are like, I don't know, Tony Robbins, for example, uh, the way, at least the way I understand him, there's a lot of kind of masculine, forceful, shatter your inner critic beliefs, etc. And I I love a compassionate approach. And so if you if we stick to that example of like, 
it's hard. I imagine there was a part of you that didn't like that you were scared of getting cut or, or getting injured. Mm-hmm. So, so what is it? What, could you walk us through the process of meeting a fear that maybe your mind would say, it's like so irrational and it's, it's holding us back and, and meeting that with compassion? Yeah. If you do. You, okay. So do you know internal family systems at all? I do. So in internal family systems, you know how there's, there's the wound, we, they're called the exile. And then there's a guardian, like a protector. And then there's, there could be an inner critic. So the wound can't heal if it's met with force or judgment. So from either one, depending on who's doing it, there's not enough safety to come out. So all of this stuff, all this wounding, all these unconscious beliefs, they're all energies held in the body. They're energies that have information in it. And as long as that information is in there and it's contracted and it's holding this survival energy fear, it's kind of like if you're a human battery, all these little things that are being held in your body eat up some of your energy. So you could be operating, some people are operating at 60% or some. that's why some people get, you know, can feel exhausted or ill all the time. So when we meet it with compassion, it has the state and like understanding and acknowledgement, the wound, it has space to release whatever it's holding. Maybe it's releasing stress or anxiety or shame, but it if it's met with love, um, David Hawkins talks about this. It's a higher level of consciousness. It's in the range of power and it has more energy, more frequency. So when you meet something with a higher level of consciousness, it actually raises the level of consciousness of the thing you're meeting. Mm. So you literally raise it up and it gets to release and then it it joins the rest of the body, the energy in its in its life force form. It's kind of like if there's an ocean with little icebergs in it, the iceberg melts and gets to rejoin the ocean. And then you have more flow of the ocean. Hmm. I love that. A lot of my, and I know that, you know, Yotam chapter actually. And uh, I've been working with him for over two years now, and I've known him for well over that. A lot of the inner work that I do with him, which is every other week is internal family systems. It's, Mm. it's me meeting a, part of myself with compassion instead of jerking myself around, which I historic, that's, that's my patterned behavior is to in a herky jerky way, get myself to do things, get results, but to be really hard on myself and maybe a really tangible example that I could use. I, I continue to have a hard time with, well, there's, there's a few things I have a hard time with, but one is just allowing myself to be nervous or scared. Like I, I think historically have made that a really bad thing. Mm. And, and we'll, we'll call my inner seven-year-old again. So if I was scared as a seven-year-old, I learned that that was not a, an attractive behavior. So sarcasm is one thing, one tool that I developed to kind of chameleon myself and and be funny. I, I knew how to make people laugh with sarcasm. Another thing I did was rely on my intellect. So I was really smart. I wasn't the most charismatic, but I was really smart and I understood concepts really well. And I was really good at focusing on other people, but not on me, like making other people feel at ease. That's been one of my predominant, still one of my predominant strategies is my okayness depends on all of your okayness. 
and I'll take care of myself after. And the power of internal family systems, there's so much, but really making contact with the parts of me that I've developed. So you call them protectors, right? Or managers, maybe the protector parts that chameleon or were sarcastic and, and thanking them for all the work that they've done. Mm-hmm. And then also getting in touch with the scared part of me that's really been stuck. It's, it's crazy, but the scared part of me a lot of times is frozen in my body. And when I make contact with that part of me and meet it with love and compassion, it frees up. There's so much more aliveness and, and presence that happens in, in a moment like that in a, in a way that I, I couldn't possibly fat. I, so the first time that that happened, I was like, what is happening to me right now? This is so crazy. <laughs> Did you get all this energy back or something or? Yeah, I think, I think so. It's been a slow, it's been a slow and gradual process for me because I still, uh, you know, for example, if someone asked me how my coaching business is going, I still, I contract a little bit. Like there's a, the parts of me that get scared come up and then I, other parts might jump in and, and take over the show for a little bit. And I'm like, God, why am I still scared? I've been doing this for a few years now. Why am I get scared when someone asks me about something I'm really passionate about? And actually taking the time later to journal or whatever, whatever thing helps for any person. But for me, journaling helps a lot or talking to my partner. Hey, yeah. when your when your parents asked me about how my business was going, I just know I noticed I got really scared. And yeah. uh, in, in the moment I tried to brush past that, but it helps for me to just say, like I, I felt a lot of fear in that moment. It's it's crazy how the that that does restore my energy to feel like oh, I'm I'm okay. I'm good. Yeah. Well, what I'm hearing you say is, you know, naming your truth, what's real for you yeah. restores your truth. I mean, that makes sense truth is known to be life-giving. So it's, yeah, I love that you're doing that. Yeah. So as promised, we're going to ping pong around and I want to make sure that we talk about, there's other experiences I know have been really formative for you. And when we checked in before this conversation, you said that you had a tingly aliveness and maybe, Uh maybe one reason that you would attribute to that is the Dr. Joe Dispenza retreats that you've attended. And In any way you see fit, would love to hear you talk about why that was so, like, what was the impact that attending those had on you? They're phenomenal. They're miraculous. So you go to a seven day retreat and you're meditating for six hours a day, but you're not med- like I've meditated before. I've done 10 hour silent meditation sits and they were powerful and healing and all the things, but the way that he does it is different. He has you meditating in such a way where he calls brain heart coherence. So he's he's so scientific, which is great. They used to call him say he was doing pseudoscience, but now he's got, you know, peer reviewed. He's got scientists like proving everything he's doing and doing e scans or e scans or whatever, but he's measuring everything. So you're meditating in a way where you're creating brain heart coherence. Heart math has one of those little monitors where you can track for the coherence. But when you do, you're emitting so much energy from your heart, which is actually like another brain. And through that, your body starts shifting. Okay, let me back up. Basically, his premise is your whole body is really energy. There's no really solid matter. They've shown that in science. When you get down to the cells and the atoms, it's all just energy. 
And the slower the energy waves are moving, the more dense it seems like matter. So Hawkins would say in one of his or some of his books that force is a heavier, denser energy. And as you get to higher levels of energy, like love and peace and understanding, and they're higher waves of energy. So when you do this meditation and get the brain heart coherence, you're lifting your energy up and you're going into faster waves, which is more closer, getting closer and closer to light versus density mm -hmm. in 3D matter. So by doing this technique and understanding, he also lectures so that we understand what's happening because our awareness is so powerful that if we believe or if we understand or know something that's happening, we can actually amplify the effects because we do actually influence our environment. So by doing all that, we were able to, I mean, what I saw all week was just, I was becoming happier and happier. I could feel energy swelling in my heart. People, I mean, people were coming in on wheelchairs and going up to the front and talking about these debilitating chronic illnesses that they've had and having huge healings and breakthroughs. And I saw so many people getting up out of wheelchairs and people who haven't walked and anywhere from like a few years to like 16 years. I mean, not everybody had that dramatic of a healing, but everybody shifted. Yeah. So I'm just going to it. I noticed that my energy increased. I felt my heart just booming and expanding. I've had a chronic back issue since I had my daughter and it's like 70% better. I used to wear a, a back brace to go hiking. I don't, I don't even wear it anymore. My vision was getting a little blurry. I've had LASIK twice and my vision was getting a little blurry again and it's starting to get sharper and clearer. And just my levels of happiness and joy are just shooting through the roof. It's mm -hmm. amazing. And I, I did three in a row because it was just so powerful. And a bunch of my friends did it with me. My friend needed prostate surgery. His prostate was growing into his bladder. So he had to self-catheterize and he couldn't pee. It was, and it went on that went like this for like two months. And the doctors told him he needed surgery to cut, cut it so that it wouldn't happen. And he didn't want to do that because he might not be able to have kids. He meditated for six weeks before even going to a retreat, created this brain heart coherence and it completely reversed. So hmm. physical, emotional, it's just and it's just amazing. Like you're, you're basically like shifting and transforming your energy, which actually affects everything else. So it's like, you're changing your mind to change your body. Mm -hmm. hmm. One of my, I've had chronic back pain for past six years or so as well. And it's not from Dr. Joe Dispenza, but I read a book called healing back pain. And I don't know mm -hmm. if you're familiar with it, but it basically in so many words said that it's all it, it's happening up here, like your brain has developed a certain pattern. And there's so much conditioning in our society around the back needs to be supported by your abs. And it, it as it turns out, I mean, back pain is relatively speaking is a, a recent advent, I guess, in, in human bodies that like the chronic back pain that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. it, it hasn't been a thing for most of human history. And, and because of like many things, because of the conditioning, right, you need to be careful, you need to have your back straight when you pick ah. things up. We've, we've internalized that our back needs to be really taken care of. And so as a result, there's a, a pain might manifest, but it also talks about repressed emotions. And I found this life changing that as someone th there's actually an interesting question that I'll get to here that probably doesn't seem like it relates, but I think it, it does in a big way. A lot of really conscientious people get back pain. 
and people who don't express anger well. And I believe that anger is something that you've had a tough time with. And another a backdoor entry into what is happening in our unconscious mind is to just understand where these emotions are coming from. So I say all this to say, one thing that really resonates about the Dr. Joe Dispenza event is that when someone's really in touch with what's happening in their body, a lot, like a lot of stuff seems to resolve itself where it seems like humans are just healing adaptation machines. Like when we take care of ourselves, a lot of stuff ends up resolving itself. One of the ways that we might not take care of ourselves is if we don't allow ourselves to feel emotions because we've labeled them as something that we don't do or is bad. And anger, talk about intergenerationally, anger historically in the Trugman family, no bueno. So what has, what's your relationship with anger been like? And, and how have you opened yourself up to feeling more of not only anger, but just your full emotional experience? That was definitely a journey. Well, I just want to reference David Hawkins again, just for a second. He's got yeah. this whole list of emotions and on the bottom is shame. And he says that shame mm. actually has the lowest amount of energy in it. And if a person's dominant emotional state is at shame, they're one step up from death. It's that low. So if they're chronically living in shame and anything from pride down to anger, fear, guilt, shame, all that kind of grief, all that kind of stuff. If that's the dominant emotional state, it actually creates that dis-ease, that ailments in the body because it's a not enough energy. It's it's the, He calls it life-threatening energy. But when you shift up into the higher levels, again, with like courage, love, all that stuff, then it's all of a sudden it's life-giving energy. And it not only gives the body energy to heal, but then it also impacts people around you. Everybody can feel it and they get nourished just by being in your presence. But yeah, it was interesting. Uh, well, growing up, like anger wasn't okay for me, but it was okay for everybody around me. They could all be angry with me, but I wasn't allowed to be angry back. But it, but looking at Hawkins' chart, it's like anger is a, a higher, better feeling emotion than fear or grief or shame or pain. So a lot, so anger in itself isn't a bad thing. I mean, none of them are. They're just, they're emotions. They're human emotions. But anger can be a good thing that can help you get out of shame, right? If you're angry enough to quit that job where it sucks or something, or, but if you're living at a predominant state of like acceptance, neutrality, or love, then anger feels terrible in the body because it's, you're dropping down to get into it. So it depends on where you're coming from, but the higher, the higher perspective or the higher, better feeling emotion is always, it's always a, like a good thing, I guess, to keep moving up. So I used to make anger wrong, but now I see it as just people use it so they don't have to feel what's under that what's lower mm. than that mm. and what would you say your relationship with anger is like now this is something that's a huge edge for me so i'm really curious about how i can more readily make space for anger if i get angry the first thing i ask is what is this protecting mm. because if i'm angry something feels threatened whether it's real or not is irrelevant but some part of me feels threatened so i immediately look at like where's the innocence because if you're feeling angry, there's some some part of you that just wants something, you know, good, something innocent, like safety or, I don't know, to be loved or something. So I immediately go there now. And then it usually diffuses it pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Are there other emotions that, whether it's with you or clients, that you, people have a gnarly relationship with and, and to get in right relationship with them has been a little bit of a journey for you and 
if you could explain like fear, I, I imagine is a, a really big one too. In my experience, making space for what is and, and not resisting, we, we can't really control what's happening, right? Like if I feel fear, I can, I can try and do some sort of shift move around it, or it could just be like, huh, that's interesting. What's, what's this all about? So are there other, other emotions that you or clients have had a hard time with? And cause I love, I love the prompt around angers. What is this protecting? So maybe a simpler question is what, what other, what are the questions that like sadness or grief or shame might be prompting? Mm. Well, shame, society can use shame to control people. It's a way of disciplining people so they do what you want. So, and it activates the part of the brain that is connected to pain, which is why if there's enough shaming going on, like a person's literally feeling hurt, like it's not feeling great. I think one of the things I've done with shame is shame is very popular to use in Asia so uh, or in South Korea. So one of the things I do is just let myself feel shame. I'll just let the energy run through my body without any resistance. And I'll just breathe in. I'll tap and I'll breathe in deep, slow, diaphragmatic breaths and just let myself let it run. If you let something run, no feeling lasts forever. But mm-hmm. it's when we when we resist it. Usually what people do with shame is a number of things. They'll freeze or they'll start attacking the person who they think is the cause of the shame or, you know, fight, flight, freeze, fawn, whatever they do. Um, But every time they're doing something around it, they're not allowing themselves to feel it. They're trying to get it to go away. So the more comfortable we can get into just surrendering to what's going on in our body, not labeling it as good or bad, but it's like, okay, this energy is here. The shame is here. It feels painful. It feels like, you know, just letting it run with compassion you can just tap her and it will run through eventually mm. as long as you're not making it wrong anytime you make we make something wrong or we avoid it 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 keeps it stuck mm. well if we transition a little bit here unless there's other things that you want to share about emotions because and and we might work our way back around in in the conversation but I will just say that emotions are addictive. They're very addictive and our bodies like to feel it. There's a saying in, um, I'm paraphrasing again, but in A Course in Miracles, you you find what you're looking for. Or in Landmark, they call it, you win, You always win the game you're playing. So if you keep running into certain emotional dynamics or situations, it's because a part of us is seeking it. In trauma work, they call that the repetition compulsion. Um, but our bodies are like familiar emotions. And even if they're considered negative emotions like shame or anger, we will seek it out. Um, so we have to first recognize that there's a part of us, for every part of us that doesn't want something, there's a part of us that does want it. So that's, that's kind of how the unconscious works because it thinks that everything's all about survival to the ego, the human survival machine. So there's a part of us that thinks it's safer to hold on to that identity or that familiar emotional pattern. So just just knowing that could be a huge help. Again, truth, yeah. it, like it's really helpful. Yeah. So we we haven't spoken too much in this conversation, if at all, about trauma that has happened in our lifetime. We we've spoken about how we might inherit it from our parents and so on and so forth. And that was one of the things we had teed up for this conversation. I think it's super important. I think workplaces are starting to warm up to the fact that we're all impacted by trauma to varying degrees. 
And I mean, one, one narrative that I see that's been, I have felt because I've grew up in a really loving and amazing household. And I think everyone experiences trauma and to deny that talk about ways that we're not allowing our full aliveness and not we're denying our experience in, in some way is to diminish like someone had it worse than me. So I, what, yeah, what am I going to complain about? I, I had it pretty good. I guess it's a little bit of a word vomit, but I'm just wondering if you could speak to the way that trauma impacts every single person. I'll start with how MindLight defines trauma. Before I started training at MindLight, I really had no idea the mechanics of trauma and like what it really was, but it's unintegrated energy in the body. So if something terrifying, painful, or jarring happens, unless it's able to run its course, it can get stuck in the system. And it really depends on how the person is relating to it. Like something that's traumatic for one person might not be traumatic for another person. So when that energy gets stuck, it's looping and it's looping and it will create um, ways to protect itself. So that's, that's just a very, very simplified way of looking at it. And then there's a range, right? There's a huge range in how much trauma a person has. And the more unintegrated energy gets taken up in the body, the more it takes away that capacity, the capacity to come back to safety, the the resilience, their um, energy. Like there's this, was that, that test, the uh, ACEs test, adverse childhood. I forget the, what the East says. Yeah. But they were talking about how, depending on what your score is, and I think four is the worst, they will likely have adverse experiences as adults, more illness, more financial issues. So yeah, d depending on the severity of the trauma, there's a huge difference from in amount versus how we can end up as adults. There's so many things I could speak to about it, but I mean, I had developmental trauma growing up and I would say that I had a loving family that unconsciously was repeating systemic ways of childhood abuse that they didn't relate to as abuse because it was considered normal. And it had a huge impact on my nervous system. And I had learning disabilities until, or I was diagnosed as having learning disabilities until I was able to integrate that energy. And then my body was able to come out of that chronic fight or flight. So that's just some stuff, but am I answering your question? Yeah. Yeah. And at one point in your response, you said that there's varying degrees and, and that there's a, a probably a million and one things that you could say about trauma, but I think it's really important to understand, like, I want to triple underscore that if it's, if there's something that we have a reaction to, even if another person doesn't have a, a traumatic response to that, it's just a, a fickle way that the mind tries to rationalize something, but it's, we're doing ourselves a disservice if we aren't in some way reintegrating something that was hard for us. I mean, that's like, isn't that kind of the period stop? If something impacted us, then there's, there's no explanation needed. Yeah. You were talking before about how people can compare and say like, yeah. well, it wasn't that bad. That person has it worse. The way I kind of think about it is like, who cares if you had a fingertip cut off versus an arm, like pain is pain. If you're in mm -hmm. pain, you know, you can do something and have something be done about it. And this whole thing people have of comparing, I was just talking about this with a friend the other day, like, like it's such a common thing to compare pain, right? I had it worse or like my daughter, when she was in middle school, she all of her and her friends, they would compare who had the worst experiences and try to kind of 
special themselves. Like I'm special because I went through something real worse. And my other friend who is a heroin, he recovered from heroin addiction. He said the same thing happened to treatment. They would kind of, it's like they wanted to show like how much harder they had it. We were discussing it and saying like, I think that human ego just has a natural tendency to want to feel special to want to be validated, to want to be loved. And it can, it's, there's an innocence to it, a real, a real genuine innocence to it. Like we all just want to connect and be loved and be seen. And when we don't have that, we can try to, you know, stand out in other ways, which is through our pain. But then, then there's the ways where we can uh, diminish our pain and say like, well, it's not that bad. And probably, I mean, for me, I used to do the same thing and just kind of diminish it and say like, well, it's not that bad. My parents love me. And but it really wasn't about that. It wasn't about judging them. It was about, oh, there's an impact here. Let's let's meet that. I think we're not really taught about trauma, so we don't know. So then there's a whole bunch of different ways that can go when we don't know that it's actually a valid thing that deserves respect and attention. Yeah. And I think various things that you've spoken about in this conversation would be supportive in helping people unearth, uncover, meet that, that moment of of trauma or whatever it is, the pain, just meeting the pain with a certain amount of love and compassion and care. Well, this, and this is a, it's a touchy subject to speak about, but maybe worth noting here that trauma is, you, you want to explore that with the right person in a safe environment, safe setting. This isn't, this isn't meant for, for, you know, any random person to guide you on experience. Like it could be really damaging to try and meet your trauma with someone who's not adept at helping with that. So I think it's important to say that this isn't, I'm not standing from a stage and and saying, you gotta, it's holding you back and you gotta, you gotta dive right in there. Like there's actually really adaptive reasons that, that we haven't looked at that for our whole life. And it's only, I think only when you feel ready and you're supported and held, right. That that's probably a, a time to start looking at this more closely. Absolutely. I mean, definitely with a professional, because I think, well, I think the thing, a common thing that can happen, or at least something that I experienced was being around a lot of people with trauma who didn't realize it was trauma. And then people around them getting angry, like, 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 why can't you just get over this? Or what's the Mm -hmm. problem? Or, or invalidating it or saying, well, I just did this. And it's, it's like, it's not the same. Like, we have no idea what's going on in another person's shoes and whatever they're experiencing is valid. And it's valid for them. And we have no idea the history trailing behind them. So I think just, but it's also hard being the recipient of someone who has trauma. And then they're always kind of expressing that in a way because the person who isn't trained also gets impacted. So it's mm-hmm. it's like, but so just having awareness of it is, is makes it easier. Yeah. But then, yeah, going to, going to a professional. Mm-hmm. There was something fascinating that I, that I heard you drop in there that I want to unpack and explore a little bit more. And I, forgive me if I don't say it exactly correctly, but I think you'll know what I'm talking about. There's When there's a part of us that wants something, but we don't have it, there's there's also a part of us that doesn't want that thing, right? Is, it, was that, is that close to what you said? Yeah. So I think like a really common one for me is... I want, let's say, a six-figure thriving coaching business, mm-hmm. and I, but I don't have that. So if we could, we could work this out in real time on me, could you, could you t- walk through? Because my conscious mind is going to say, of course I want that. Like I'll, I'll have more money. I'll make a bigger impact. And there's a part yeah. of me that 
clearly doesn't want that. So what's like, what's that all about? Yeah, that's great. I love that you're willing to go there because a lot of times people have a hard time hearing that. So you like immediately were like acknowledging it. So that's a big step. So the parts of you that want it, those are great. You can come up with your whys. Like Tony Robbins loves to say, come with it, come up with a really strong why. And that's, of course, that's half of the work, right? And then also find all the parts of you that don't want it. And this is where focusing can become, or journal prompts can become really helpful. Or if you're practicing it, you could probably just think of it out loud. But there's a part of you that doesn't want it for a very good reason. And if you, it's always survival-based, whether it's physical or social or emotional. So if you just sit there and you ask, okay, what are all the reasons why I don't want it? Yeah, yeah. What are the reasons I don't want it? I think that while I've made a, a lot of headway in being seen, I am scared of being seen. But that's a, I take us, there's a certain responsibility or there's a part of me that is really scared of what that would mean if I am, and, and maybe even a deeper level below that, if I really drop in, looks at other, other people in this space and goes, you're not as good as, you're not as good as those people. Mm. They're, they're so, better. so we could probably, you know, dive deep into each those each one of those two components you just mentioned. Yeah. Like if I like if we were in a session I would ask you like what does it mean to be seen? Like what could happen? And I would tell you to just forget about it being logical, let your mind just come up with images, feelings, let it run rampant. Mm. Yeah, what does it mean to be seen? So I'm closing my eyes here. Like just feel the fear. So there's that's just one element of what's happening right now is I, I feel fear, a little bit of contraction. I've had a fear my whole life of being found out. Some people would call it imposter syndrome. What if you're found out? Then what? Yeah, there's like a there's a level of a belonging is at threat, like that I would be all alone. Yeah. That's a big deal to yeah. people. We're tribal creatures. Yeah. So that's one thing is feeling that, well, when you say being found out, it means to me, I interpret that as like being judged as not enough. Yes. That's yeah. exactly right. All right, cool. So that's that's one part. And then I forget what was this, the other part that you said earlier. You said it was being seen and something else yeah there's there's a level of comparison of other other people who are in this space ah. they they're better than me better than you hmm. i would probably ask you to just listen to that feeling and let it tell you i'm guessing that there's memories stored in there of feeling that way whether it's this life or inherited or whatever but there's there's something stored in there about being compared to if you kind of just ask, does something come up? I mean, it's interesting that one of the first images, I don't know how much this relates, but this is the first thing that popped up. I remember when I was younger, like early teens, I felt more and more like being in my body was hard. I wouldn't have said it that way, but like my palms were always sweaty coming out of classes and it just... 
it felt good to, to hide myself because then people wouldn't see that I was nervous and awkward and tense. And my sister was very outgoing, bubbly performer. And I was getting an image of a time where we were, we ran into, I don't even remember who the people were. We, we went out for lunch or something stopped by my mom knew someone there it was me my mom my sister and someone was asking me about my career aspirations and i i said like maybe accounting which is what i ended up starting my career in and the the per- i remember perceiving the person as being like oh okay and what about you so my sister and she's a love feeder and i could see the way this person lit up when when my sister was talking about being a performer and that, that, that seemed, I made up that she was a more interesting person than I. So maybe actually it's not better than it's like, I'm not an interesting person because I'm awkward. I'm scared. um, shy, like something like that. Mm. So what you're, what you're saying right now points to something important, which is we go back in time and something happens and that when that something happens, we we come up with a reason for it. It's like, I must not be as interesting. Mm-hmm. And then we usually we usually have, once we make that decision, we usually have other incidences where we keep gathering evidence for that. And that mm-hmm. keeps getting stored in our body as as a truth, which it's not, but, you know. Mm-hmm. And then we don't really examine it. And then we kind of go up into our adult life and we, we operate from that energy because it's still in the body and it's still running. Mm-hmm. So I admit my guess is that there's probably some things earlier than that as well for sure that that contributed to it kind of that's how it is it's like our identity the way we go out and operate it builds on each other there's the pre-verbal from zero to there's the inherited then the pre-verbal and but it keeps building all these little encounters and these beliefs and then they get stacked and stacked and stacked and it's i think when we're from zero to eight years old we are in a I forget what the brainwave state name was. It might be theta or, or something. And I think when we were infants, it's like Delta, but it's like, it's like a hypnotic state where it gets really deep into our subconscious. And then if not investigated, it just kind of gets held in the body and we, we live from that place. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. fear that you were talking about, about being seen, being enough, being alone, all that stuff in the coaching practice, it makes sense that those, that feeling, those parts of you or those aspects would be wanting to keep it manageable. Mm-hmm. And, and when you, when you prompted that, that you, you posit that there's something earlier than that. And it immediately, what it sparked in me is that I remember if I was little, I was really scared that if I made a mistake, if I messed up, that I would be reprimanded by my parents. Like I was, I was really scared of the response that might happen if I wasn't air quotes, perfect. And so I spent a lot of one way to look perfect is to not take a lot of chances. Right. And so me sticking my neck out and taking a chance is really hard for like that historically has been really hard for me because Mm -hmm. if I mess up on a bigger scale, I've, I've learned from a, from a young age, if I mess up in any way that that's, I'm going to be reprimanded and I don't like it and I don't do conflict well, et cetera. And to do it on a bigger, if I allow myself to be seen in front of lots of people, then it, it's a kind of deepening what we were already talking about. Yeah. I could imagine to that part that it would just be just way more of a risk, way yeah. more reprimands potentially. So what's interesting is again, like that innocence, 
Like if you, if you're just kind of looking at the innocence of all these parts of us, it's like that part of you just wants to be safe, mm-hmm. be loved, belong. It's really like this beautiful innocence to it. And really all it's avoiding is a feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Just a feeling in the body and then, and then thoughts are attached to it, but it's really just people just really avoid the emotional pain body as Eckhart Tolle talks about it. And it's actually way more easy to release that energy. So you never feel that again with that trigger than we think. And so what, would, what would that look like to, to release it? I mean, I know in internal family systems, what I would do now that I've kind of cleared the way of my parts that don't want that part to be seen, I would probably just in some way converse with the four-year-old in me that's that was scared of messing up and and listen to him and ask what he wants or needs and if i was doing this work if i was really dropped in i think he would just want to be told he's okay you know it's okay if you make if you make a mistake it's okay and almost imagine that i'm there with him and that would release the the fear and and maybe the shame of not being perfect air quotes again yeah, I like what you're naming, the talking to the part, going directly and talking to that energy, bringing him compassion and reassurance. I think corrective experiences are also helpful, like having people show you that what you think will happen is not. Yeah. But Mind Light is really fantastic because when we do the EFT and we do the techniques, we're like kind of uprooting it out of the, the body. So it can be, so doing that while doing tapping can also be really, really potent. I think I've gotten towards more deeper trauma by making sure to also address the body and do the tapping. And yeah, that was, that was really effective. I mean, like deeper, deep, you could feel it. Like you're like, you're excavating your energetic body and releasing it out. So it's like, mind light does a blend of somatic experiencing with internal family systems with this and that they kind of synthesize their own thing, but they're always tapping on the body, doing the diaphragmatic breathing. And you're, so you're emptying the body of this unconscious things. So that's a really fantastic technique. Another really great one I love is breath work. Have mm-hmm. you done breath work? Yeah. Oh yeah. So there's this, there's this Belarusian guy who was raised in Poland. His name is Vitaly, but he does these in, he has these intense breath work sessions, which are fantastic because you just bypass the conscious mind completely. And uh, he has these hour long sessions that you can do. And uh, it's really great when you set an intention, if you set an intention and then, then do the hour long, breath work i think uh, the conscious mind can shape what gets released so i've like dumped and emptied out so much fear from just doing these hour-long sessions like multiple days in a row so that's wow. i i usually do that in conjunction with the eft and all the other all the other things and it's potent i mean you said why tally can you could you spell the name do you know how to spell it w i t a l i j i think that's his last name one more time sorry w i t a L-I-J. So I think that's his last name, but he calls his program Vitality. You know, it's for vitality, so it's clever. Um, (laughs) He's, yeah, yeah, he's really, really got a really great guided meditation voice, but his are potent. My gosh, they have been, it's great. My whole family started doing it. My husband has sleep issues and his sleep issues are gone. Like he used to wake up a lot during the night from stress and he's just not doing that. But if he skips a breathwork session, it's sometimes... Yeah. If he skips it, it, it can come back. So maybe he hasn't released all of it, but it's working for him in a way that other things haven't. So that's amazing. The dispensa meditations also, when you're doing intense, intense, the meditation sessions, it just, again, it just accesses the unconscious and sometimes your energy just 
empties out and heals of this unconscious stuff without ever directly addressing it. A lot mm-hmm. of times when, when we're meditating, though, like your body tells you what it wants to release. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything else around energetics that feels like it'd be helpful to share? Like breath work is potent. EFT is potent. Any Anything around, we've spoken a lot about inner work, but is there any other way that you look at energy and support folks in what you might call energetics? So it's really a combination of a lot of this stuff, but the bottom line is the closer we get to truth when we're doing the EFT or IFS or family constellations, the, the closer we get to the deepest layer of root truth, the more it releases. The more we address the body, the more it releases. The more we can truly not only welcome and accept with compassion whatever's coming up, but seeing it from a as high a perspective as possible, that also shifts what you're looking at if that makes sense. Like, yeah. like I was saying before, David Hawkins was saying that his, he had a therapy practice with all these different therapists working for him. And the people who had the highest level of consciousness got the most results from their clients. So the higher perspective or the, and the higher level of energy that you're looking from, you just, you change what you're looking at. So you're influencing them while you're working with them and it, it, you just get way more results. So just constantly doing your own work so you can hold that that also helps. Yeah. So I always, muscle, whenever I go to work with someone, I muscle test to see like what level of consciousness that they're at. Cause I know I'll get more results. So yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So there's, I think there's only one more, well, I have two things written down here. And so maybe I'll, I'll serve up a, a menu of different options that you can take and run with. Okay. I, so creating in life is one of the things that you gave me as a prompt and I think one of the natural byproducts of doing all of this work, if you're doing breath work, if you're doing inner work, you're, you're doing all the things, you probably start to get in touch with a more creative energy is one way to put it, right? Like you, you're more in touch with what your deepest, truest desires are. And I don't know if, what, if that's what you meant by creating in life or what you meant. And so if, if you wanted to speak a little bit about that, and I also wanted to speak a little bit about projection. And we, that was mentioned at a, a point in the conversation, but I think it could be helpful to un- understand a little bit more about what that is, how we all do it, what the work is to do when we project. So I'll, I'll let you decide which way you want to go from here. I can go in both directions because they, sure. kind of, they kind of intertwine. So everything in our lives is a mirror anyway. Like the whole world is projecting a reality and all we're ever seeing is what we've created through our beliefs. So another way of saying that, like we impact our environment. Do you ever see, there's this, there's a study done, I forget about the name of the French scientist, but it was, there was all these little ducks, these little baby ducks, and they had an AI robot that would randomly go around a little square space. And the ducks were on the right side, the little baby chicks were on the right side, the AI bot was on the left side. And they 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 watched the AI robot and it was completely random, 50% chance of, you know, just kind of ping around. When they put the little baby chicks, the chicks imprinted on the AI bot and thought it was their mom. And so then after the little ducky chicks were there, the AI bot started only pinging around near the chicks. So basically these chicks desire their desire for their imprinted mom to be near them actually drew the machine, the AI bot near them. So we're all able to influence our environment. The, the quantum field from what the bleep do we know? Dr. Joe talks about it. It's like a real measurable 
think that scientists can measure over and over and over. Like they even talk about the power of prayer and how it can heal people. They did all these blind studies of groups of people like sending loving energy towards a certain group. Then there was a group that had nothing. And then there was a group that had a placebo who were told that they had something and didn't. And it was all like blind. So they would do this and keep rotating every single month and not tell which group, who was who. And so it, it's it's very measurable that our intention, like when we're sending out an energy, it really has an effect, right? So when we're projecting and everything is a mirror, it's usually based on our past and what we believe, like how we, what we believe we will look for evidence of it in our world around us. So that's how we're projecting. Like a person could be completely generous, but if we think that everyone's selfish and we're just firmly believing that or that we're not worthy of receiving, we won't be able to receive from them or we won't be able to see like all that we are receiving. We'll kind of skew that. So the world can be really useful in that way because it's a mirror. So anytime when something happens that we don't like, we can just ask ourselves, like, what, what is, what do I believe in me that attracted this experience? Mm-hmm. Because we are that powerful that that will happen. I could pause there in case you wanted to say anything. I'm, I'm keen for you to keep on going if you want to keep on going. Uh-huh. I, yeah. Okay. So uh, as it pertains, I mean, when I, when I hear projection, I say, I usually, I think of it in, in a negative. Like if I, if I'm irritated by a specific person, or someone says something that, I don't know, someone says something that overinflates the importance of money based on what I think about money. That I want to, like, I can feel in me that I want to pounce on that. And like, money isn't everything. There's so much more to life. And that's a projection, right? So I'm, I would love to hear you riff a little bit on on what projection means in that way for you. Yeah, like in, in A Course in Miracles, they talk about this, but they're like, nothing inherently has meaning. It only has the meaning that we assign to it. Everything in itself is actually neutral. And then that we have preferences usually based on emotion and survival and our values. And so, yeah, like anything that we can't be with or that we have a judgment about, we will see things related to it in that way. I mean, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. But like money in itself, like if this person is, you know, believing that it's just, okay, if they're believing it based on this trail of history behind them about what what they've decided you know yes yeah how do you look at your relationship with money i mean i i saw on your website that one of the there's a there's a list of amazing results that people get in working with you and one of them is that they have a more abundant relationship with money and with life but but also have created more financial abundance and security in their life so how do you Um, look at yeah Go ahead. How do I look at money? I think it's a an energy. I think there's a crazy amount of projection onto it. Mm-hmm. I used to have this belief that I did if I didn't make a certain amount of money that somehow I wasn't as worthy in some way, and that's that's an inherited belief, right? And then I started saying to my, just started questioning a lot of my beliefs. Like, is that really true? Like, is that really true when there's tribes around the world who don't even have money as a source of exchange and live off the land, and they don't even, and then when they see people coming and obsessed about money or Westerners coming to their forests. It was about this Amazon forest. I read this article. They're just like, can't understand this crazy obsessive need around money. So I've done a lot of like deconstruction of pulling that apart of like, what is it really to have? What does it really mean? And essentially it comes down to being this neutral thing that people have put meaning onto it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still, of course, I still want it, you know, like, 
because it provides like it's useful. It provides something where I'm living and in this culture as of right now, but that could shift later. Mm-hmm. It, it can be disorienting. I know that for me, it's been disorienting to deconstruct that reality only exists in as much as we, we make it up in our head. But what I have noticed in me analyzing my relationship with money isn't, isn't as much that I don't care about it. It's that I've let go of beliefs that, that haven't been serving me around money. Like I need to grind and work hard to get it. People that have a lot of it are evil. People who don't have a lot of it are less than, right? Like think, things like yeah, that. Yeah, love it. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds really helpful. I mean, just hearing you say that, it sounds like you're giving yourself a lot more space and expansion around the topic of money. Mm-hmm. And it makes asking for it, like as a coach, and if I say my rates, it, it makes asking for it less of a big deal, right? It, it is just an energy exchange. So I think... A lot of it, it can sound, I know when I first started listening to conversations like the one we're having now, that my mind wanted to latch onto something that was really practical. Like, this is really cool and I love it, but what do I do with all this? And I, I think the the really practical thing is to examine the beliefs that we place onto different things, even if it's not money, just what do we what do we depend on in our life and and what do we what stories are we telling about the other the things in our life? And there's and from a deeper place, we get in touch with what actually matters to us. And money can be a really beautiful extension and expression of what matters to us. And from that place, instead of hunting for it and thinking I've got to hoard it and put it away forever, it feels more generative. Like I, I get to make money and I am using it in ways that feel aligned for me, like with healthy yeah. food and experiences and things like that. Oh yeah. I love money. Money's fun. (laughs) So absolutely. Whatever creates aliveness and flow and feels really in integrity, like go for it. Mm. So what are, what are some, I'm going to move towards the back end of the conversation, unless you have anything else that's top of mind that, you know, any loops that you want to close, any threads that we started to open that you have any other thoughts on? The creation, right? So we were talking about how we project everywhere. As long as we recognize it, we have choice and we create, right? So we we're talking about the ducks, how we actually influence our environment. And in Dr. Joe Dispenza's work, that is very common. I mean, he's not the first person who's talked about this. I mean, Norman Vincent Peale, he wrote The Power of Positive Thinking. There's The Secret. There's so many people, Napoleon Hill, right? Think and Grow Rich. There's just, this is not like really new knowledge, but it's being packaged in a more accessible way these days for more people. But he's talking about how like what we absolutely believe we can have and what we envision and we feel in the experience, we can literally draw to us like the little ducks. And I see it time and again at all these retreats, people miraculously, you know, I call it miraculous because it's not as commonplace, at least in my experience, but people doing, you know, what he calls the supernatural in his book, he calls it becoming supernatural. I mean, I've heard amazing stories of people manifesting not only vacations and food and healings and money and just all sorts of experiences just by actually applying these techniques. And also in A Course in Miracles, a lot of the teachers I follow, like Jacob Glass and Jennifer Hadley, they talk about it. And it's just such, it's just, where is our energy? Are that raw creative, like in Star Wars, right? The force, like the raw creative energy, like what are we doing with it? 
because a lot of it is unconscious. But as long as we can harness that raw energy and have more choice in gathering that up, like trauma work is about freeing up energy that's been bound in the past and survival. So when we free that up, it joins the rest of our energy, like the human battery. The more we can be really aligned and intentional with the energy that we have and gather more of it up, create more expansion. Like you were doing it earlier when you said, I've let go of these feelings around money that haven't served me. Like people who have too much money are bad or whatever they is. You're, you're freeing up energy and then you can use that towards what you are wanting. So you, it's literally as easy as just, what are you doing with your energy? Mm-hmm. Mm. That's a beautiful place to start to shift to the back end here. But And actually, before I ask a couple of rapid fire questions, I know that your dear friend, Shelby, runs an organization that you wanted to raise awareness for. I do this every single episode. And so you wanted to raise awareness for antelope recovery. Shelby's been a past guest of the podcast, and as you know, and so folks might know a little bit about it already, but I will donate to Antelope Recovery, raise awareness for it. And if you want to say a word or two about Antelope Recovery and, and Shelby, the work that they're doing there, then I would love to give you some space for that. Yeah. Shelby used to work at Fire Mountain, a place that helped uh, teens with mental health. And she's created this incredible programs for teens. There's online programs and then there's in-person groups. My daughter has taken one of them, even though she was in one of the beginning groups. And it tremendous. it's like all this personal growth that we've done on how to understand what it is to be a human, how to relate to our emotions and create expansion and our heart opening. My daughter got all of that in one of the first, the first teen groups that she did with Shelby. Mm. So that was incredible. I mean, she went from not being able to raise her hand in class and getting really socially anxious to feeling confident and free. She started raising her hand in class. So it's amazing how if you have that kind of really loving, accepting, skilled space to really open up, it translates to other areas of your life. Now, Shelby, actually, her her mental antelope recovery actually works with people with more severe, but like they're doing an incredible job. And I've already heard all these testimonials and stories about the kinds of work that they're doing, the healing that they're bringing. And it's also online. So it's way more accessible. So a lot of kids that weren't able to be reached before or who don't have cars are now able to, you know, go and get the help that they need. So it's, it's just, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. All the, all the skills and the learning that she has that she's put into this programs. Well, it's a, a beautiful organization to raise awareness for. So like I said, I'll, I'll make sure I link to this in the show notes. I'll link to all the incredible resources that you've mentioned in the conversation as well. And a, a couple of rapid fire questions at the end here before we wrap up. So what's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? I mean, the first thing I thought of was my daughter and my dogs. I mean, we do yoga together and we always do it on the floor and then the dogs always come over and they're like licking us or giving us snuggles while we're doing yoga. It's just so joyful. Like I love my three babies. Mm. Very sweet. Where do you feel most unfinished? Like what's a, what's an edge that you're looking at in your life right now? Do you ever read Autobiography of a Yogi? I haven't. Well, it's it's incredible. And he talks about awakening from the veil of illusion and how we all have everything we need and all we're ever really looking for is ourselves because we are source and we do all these things thinking we're going to find some sort of fulfillment from a relationship or an activity or food or a thing. And really we're 
those are all shit that he says that they're all just like blind alleys and we're all only ever really looking for ourselves, which is source, that wholeness, that oneness that is unfinished for me. Mm-hmm. So, so, so far. I can't believe you haven't figured that out yet, Kat. I, I'm all, <laughs> I have totally found myself and I'm not, I'm not chasing anything. In life. Nice. You <laughs> learn from you. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, I think we can all relate to that one. I, I love, I love that sentiment. Yeah. It reminds me of we're all walking each other home. That's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I have two more. What's the kindest thing that someone could say about you? Kindest thing. The first thing that came up was more of a ego flattering thing that felt really kind to my system, which is like, wow, she's really making an effective difference for people. Yeah. <laughs> like that all I care about is impacting this world, right? We got the hundredth monkey effect. If we can raise a consciousness levels to an heart opening 10% then everything shifts. So that if they were saying I am doing a really effective job at it, that would really feel great. Awesome. So where would you invite folks to connect with you online? I know that you, you have an Instagram page, LinkedIn website. Is there any other place that folks can connect with you? Not at the moment. I've paused on TikTok and YouTube, but just catgalinas.com would be a, the main place. Beautiful. Okay. Yeah. And that'll be added to the, the many resources in the show notes. And uh, Kat, the final question that I ask in every single interview, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And I think in some ways you've already said this in so many words, but we'd love to hear quick out breath. What does it mean to you to live a meaningful life? Meaningful life is one where I am, well, the first thing is being of service in a really meaningful way that brings people more love and peace and joy and expansion. And to do that, I have to take the journey myself. So I think that flow back and forth of being on this journey of expansion and growth and self-realization, I guess, awakening, Mm -hmm. is that, and then sharing that with others because we're all connected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it seems like you're firmly embodying what it means to live a meaningful life. And thank you so much for sharing so many of your gifts with my audience and with me today. One of the first things I said to you when we jumped on the call today was that I feel really safe with you. And that's one of the reasons that we are able to excavate some of the parts of myself that I've done a lot of work on, but it's it's tender to to know that other people are going to be listening in on this one. And and doing my work in front of any audience is no small thing. And, and that's largely attributed to the safety I felt with you. And I, I love that you're, you're clearly so intrigued by so many aspects of consciousness and being alive. And in a lot of ways, that's what I'm up to as well. So it's, it's just been a privilege to explore all of that on this platform, on my show. And really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Thank you so much. And I I love that you shared yourself. I think that takes a lot of courage. Mm. Thank you very much. Yeah. So to everyone who's tuned in and listening, I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day or evening. Take good care and lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.
Thank you.